This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. All right. So I'm joined today by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He holds an MD and a PhD in economics, both from Stanford. I wanted Dr. Bhattacharya on the show specifically because of his background in medicine and economics. Uh, Pandemics are often wrongly thought of solely in terms of public health or medicine, but they often involve issues to um, economic ones. So uh, this puts Dr. Bhattacharya in an excellent position to see trends and problems that others are likely to miss. So Dr. Bhattacharya, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. So I first wanted to get to know you a little bit, your background. Um, you're an odd one. You have, you're a medical doctor and you have an economics PhD. So I'm curious, um, it's a very specific intellectual niche. Could you walk us through how that happened? Uh, sure. So I, I, when I was little, I, I always, I wanted to be a doctor and I don't know why. I just, I love science and it was, you know, I don't know. I just, it was a thing. I mean, maybe it's cause I'm, you know, Indian, Indian families. We have this, like, there's this like doctor engineer. I don't know what it was. Anyways, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I actually, I, I genuinely love science, uh, got to medic, got to on my undergrad, took some general ed classes, uh, including some philosophy actually, but, uh, but then economics really attracted me. I don't know what, what it, I thought, I mean, I just, I thought it was a really interesting, um, way of thinking about the world, which places at the center, these sort of trade-offs, everything is a trade-off. There's no such thing as a free lunch that, that, that idea struck me and I, and uh, especially in the context of studying uh, to be, become a doctor in medicine, I, 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 it seemed like there's trade-offs all over the place in medicine as well. Um, and so, and then I met uh, met uh, uh, Alan Garber, who's an MD PhD, and I was a provost at Harvard. Uh, he was my honors thesis advisor. He had an MD and a PhD in economics. And I, caught, I was like, okay, I want to be just like Alan. Um, and so that's how I ended up where I am. I mean, it's, um, I, I, and I, I, I don't know, you're right. It is strange actually, because it struck me during the pandemic that uh, so many people in medical profession and in public health do not see trade-offs. Uh, I, you know, sort of that's been true, I think, for a long time, but it's come really, really sharply in focus during the pandemic. Yeah, I work with a lot of economists at the moment, and um, I'm, I'm sort of, I can't help but see trade-offs now. Once you, once you start thinking that way, it's hard to, to not see trade-offs. I think there's a famous uh, quote from Dr. Thomas Sowell. who says, there's no such thing as solutions, there's only trade-offs. I think that's sort of the, the key insight. I think I read that essay. It was, it was in the context of uh, like taking pictures. Like, he, you know, like mm-hmm. the, you, you can get, uh, I mean, I don't know anything about photography, but like the, apparently there's like trade-offs and sharp focus versus versus like the width, breadth. I, okay, I'm not going to go into it, but like every, literally every single thing on that has any value whatsoever involves trade-offs. And the only question is, how, what do we value, right? We can't have everything. We have to ask ourselves what do we value. And the same is true in this, during this pandemic as well. So I wanted to talk to you, I mean, we, we had a short interview on my um, Substack, Eudaimonia Junction, um, and it's been, that's, I think it was in April, I believe, um, but I wanted to check in with you again because the Delta variant has been with us for a while, and I'm wondering, um, do you think we should change the way we approach the pandemic, given that it, from my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, it seems like the Delta variant's more um, uh, infectious, it's more transmissible, uh, I mean, there's, there's some dispute over that, but I think that's likely the case that is more transmissible. Um, th- but there's a few more things about it that are really important to know. 
Uh, one is that it's not more deadly. It's not more deadly to children. It's not more deadly to adults. Uh, the public health England data are very, very clear about that. Uh, second, it does not evade immunity due to the vaccines, and it does not evade immunity due to natural uh, you know, recovery from co prior COVID infection, even from other variants. So if you got sick last year with COVID and recovered, you are still protected against the Delta variant. If you got the vaccines, you're still protected against the Delta variant. Um, the nature of that protection is actually quite important because uh, it's, it's actually, there's a lot of confusion about it. So um, like take the vaccines. It seems very clear that, that after a few months, the vaccines no longer protect you against getting infected. You might actually get, a lot of people have had breakthroughs. I, I personally have had a breakthrough infection. I had a vaccine in April, uh, the, uh, the, the Pfizer second jab in April. And, and then I got uh, COVID in August, a few months after the jab. It, it was, it was, a, was, I mean, like a bad cold. It might, it, it, so what, what the vaccines do is not protect you against infection after a few months, but rather against a severe disease, much less likely to get severe disease, much less likely to be hospitalized, uh, die if you've had the vaccines. And the same is true even against the Delta. So, so in, in a sense then, Delta doesn't change anything fundamental. Uh, what it does do is actually call to mind a really key point about the trade-offs implicit in policy of this epidemic. Um, and and the, 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 the first axiom I think you have to think about here, the first fact I think you have to think about here is that uh, there is no way for this virus to go away. It will, there, we have no technology to eliminate this virus, to eradicate it. We barely have a technology to slow it down from spreading. A great, great cost to so many people. Uh, all right, what's the, what's the implication? The implication is that everyone on the face of the earth actually will face this virus at one point in their life or another. And acting as if we can stop it from happening for a sub certain class of people, it, it involves enormous harm to other, other classes of people that society needs to take into account and, and ultimately be futile anyways. Right? No, I don't see how, unless you literally hide in a cave with somebody delivering to you on the doorstep your food, I mean, there's not a way to avoid being exposed to this virus. Yeah, so this this brings to mind um, a, a scenario I was thinking about the other day, and I, I wanted to run it by you because I figured you can spot an error in my reasoning if I'm making a mistake here. I thought, you know, paradoxically, I wonder if maybe we shouldn't um, encourage people who are vaccinated to mask up, maybe the opposite. So the thinking is, presumably, from, from what I understand and, and what you've said, Vaccines do a pretty good job of protecting you from serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. They don't prevent infections about a few months out, right? But it seems that natural immunity does a better job of it preventing does, infections. Actually, I mean, as best I can tell, I mean, the, the, there's been surprisingly little interest in studying pure natural immunity in, in, in American publications, but there's some excellent data coming out of like, Qatar and Israel. Um, it looks like natural immunity is a better protection against reinfection than, uh, than, than the vaccines. So for instance, at one year out, there was a study, I think out of, uh, where was it? I think it was the UK. One year out, the, the reinfection rate for, the, for people who recovered from COVID was 0.3%, which is <laughs> lower than the vaccine's reinfection rate, or the infection rate as best I can tell, 0.3%. Um, so the, 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 the uh, let me put it another way. If you, um, if you are in a room, 
filled with people who have not had the vaccine, but have had natural, have recovered from natural by from 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 COVID, you are likely safer regarding getting COVID than if you sit in a room filled with vaccinated people who have not had COVID before. Let me, let me just say that because like that's like it seems really unintuitive, but it's absolutely true. It, it from what I can tell from the data, you are safer in a room filled with COVID recovered patients as far as your risk of getting COVID from them than you are in a room filled with just vaccinated people who have not had COVID previously. Well, if we're trying to prevent um, mutations, right? I, I don't know if we should, but it seems like this is a thing. Then a, a natural immunity is, is puts downward pressure on reinfections. But it seems the way to go would be get people who have had the vaccine infected so they're less likely to pass it on. Well, because it would mitigate against the serious illness and the death. I mean, and the, you, you know, know, like being a doc, as a doctor, you have this like, you never, I can't, I will never advocate for getting anybody sick. That is just not right. I, and uh, in fact, that's one of the accusations that's been made against me, which I, I mean, I take, I mean, it just, it, 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 it's just deeply wrong. I, I'm not advocating for, I, th I do think that. Um, no, 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 no. I, I wasn't saying that you were. No, oh, no, 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 no. I know, Jimmy. I know, of course, I know, Jimmy. I, I know what you, but I know exactly what you mean. So what you're headed is, what you're saying is like, well, let's carry this through to, to the logical conclusion. How do we get out of this pandemic? The, 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 we get out of this pandemic by protecting the vulnerable. We do this with the vaccines. The vaccines are fantastic protection against severe, these severe outcomes. And so getting COVID is not quite so bad. Um, actually, let me add another argument. Uh, just I'm, do I, dare I make this point before someone like accuse me of something dumb, but like, I'll just, I'll just, it, the, so there's this thousand fold difference in the risk of severe disease uh, and death between young and old. So the longer you delay the, 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 the worse the disease will be when you get it. The longer you delay, the worse the disease will be when you get it. You'd rather get it in your youth than if you, than you're in your old age. So uh, uh, what, that, what that means to me isn't that we should encourage people to get infected. I think that's a mistake. What I think what it means is we should not be prioritizing the slowing down of the, of the, of the disease spread at all costs. We should be very careful about where we do. I mean, so for instance, there are still unvaccinated people, vulnerable unvaccinated people all around the world with the disease. I, I mean, I, I'm a little uncomfortable encouraging the spread of the disease when those people exist. I mean, we want to protect them. I think we have some obligation to them. Um, many, many, many unvaccinated people. And now we're talking about the things. So, so like move, move beyond one step beyond that. Let's talk about boosters and third, do and third, you know, third doses and things or va vaccinating children. Those doses that go to vaccinating children or the third boost the th for which there's almost no data that I've seen would save more lives if they went to the unvaccinated old around the world. Morally, it's just wrong. I mean, we should not be using these doses. That, and I, I, now you can make a case, I think that you shouldn't be using those doses on children at all. We can talk about that. But from a, from a sort of like a ethical point of view, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Those doses really should be headed to older people in, you know, I don't know, Bolivia or something um, who have not been vaccinated, who have not been, who not had the disease before. Well, that was partly what was motivating my question was the, the thought of these vulnerable people around the world combined with, and maybe this is wrong, but combined with the idea that as this goes on further and we get more mutations, maybe we'll get a more dangerous mutation. I don't know though, maybe as the, maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't, but do you think that as this goes on, the variants will get less virulence? I, less I don't, I mean, so like the, 
Okay, so this is not the flu. Everyone always says that. It's true. It's not the flu. The flu that mutates every year so that it that it pretty much evades the immunity you got from the flu, from recovery from the flu in the previous year. Uh, not entirely. Like you might have got. So, for instance, like one of the reasons people have given for why the H1N1 epidemic in 1918 was so severe in young people was that the, the, that older people had faced a similar H1N1, not quite so virulent H1N1 uh, or severe uh, uh, disease. A flu in, in their youth. And so they were relatively protected compared to young people. So that's why the, the H1N1 Spanish flu hit young people so hard. So the, 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 the recovery may provide some, some, uh, so, some protection against a very you know, future flu virus. This is not like that. This, the coronaviruses are, um, I mean, they, 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 they also mutate, actually they mutate very, all the time, all those common cold viruses. They just mutate all the time. And the protection that you get from recovery lasts a very long time. It's not that, again, it's very similar actually to the to COVID. Uh, you get a cold, you get the coronavirus when you're a baby, it's mild. And then uh, you get it again and it's mild again because you've had the protection from when you had it as a baby. Um, why is it mild in your baby? Because for, for, for reasons we don't fully understand, but I think having to do with sort of how your immune system ages, babies are, are pr better protected against severe immune overreaction to, to, to coronavirus infection. And so you get as a baby, you get protected, that, the, that protection, and that the protection then turns the next coronavirus infection into a cold. In your entire life, you just get colds over and over and over again every two or three years with the coronaviruses or four years with the coronaviruses. I think that's where this is headed, almost regardless of the fact that mutations are happening with it. Um, so I'm a little unmoved actually by this discussion about variants. Uh, I don't think that we are very good at predicting the direction of of of, uh, of sort of uh, natural natural uh, uh, you know natural evolution or, or evolutionary pressure. So, for instance, like uh, this virus is 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 found in in dogs, in cats, in 40% of white-tailed deer apparently have antibodies to the virus um, in the United States. I mean, there's evolutionary pressure going on all over the place for this virus to, to change. It hasn't, it's, it's remarkable how little it's changed, frankly, uh, to me. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, 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 I'm very far from an expert in the evolutionary biology, but I do follow the literature a little. And it just seems like it hasn't changed in a fundamental way that alters uh, the biology of it or the, or what the right policy should be toward it. And the, um, uh, I, I, I do think that there's a question about who should get the vaccine. We already sort of touched on this in prioritization issues. Uh, I think that for the most part, the vaccine is most useful for the, for the old and people who have older populations and also for certain people with, 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 with chronic conditions that, that predispose them to bad outcomes. I think that from a personal protection point of view is a slam dunk case. Right? So that's why I've been a strong advocate for the vaccines. Um, for people who aren't in those conditions, I mean, it's, it's, it's a closer question, right? The, the benefit from the vaccine is lower because the COVID isn't quite so severe. Um, on the other hand, the, the, except for certain class, the certain groups of people like young boys and men with myocarditis and the mRNA vaccines, the vaccines don't seem to have that many side effects. So that's something you can talk about with your doctor. It should be a personal decision you make, not a not a uh, something that's coerced where you're forced into to get taking it for some social point of view. Well, actually, that, that's a nice that's a nice segue to a question I had about this. Um, so, as you've said repeatedly, it looks like vaccines protect against serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. Not perfectly, but they help. They put downward pressure on those. 
So then does that mean that vaccine mandates are more of a paternalism than a public health measure? So if you're not protecting other people from getting infected a couple months out, but you are protecting yourself from these dire, more dire consequences, that looks more like we're forcing you to take the vaccine to protect yourself by and large than to protect others. It's Is exactly that right? That's exactly, you have it exactly right, Jenny. So it's, it's, the vaccine is a personal protection mechanism, not a, not a public protection mechanism after a couple of months of, of stopping disease, you know, of, of reducing disease spread. Um, so in, in economic language, the, the vaccines that we're used to, things like the MMR vaccine actually do generate a positive externality. I give my child an MMR vaccine. He's not going to get infected with measles. He won't infect others with measles because he won't be infected with measles. And that lasts a very long time. So the decision to give the MMR vaccine to my child has consequences for other children that he might meet, other, other people that he might meet, uh, large ones, right? Uh, measles is a deadly infection for children. Um, on the other hand, this vaccine is not like that, right? After a very short time, maybe a couple of months, three months, four months, uh, it stops protecting others. And frankly, it doesn't even protect others all that well. You can get breakthrough infections for relatively quickly. I think there's some literature that suggests that the first couple of weeks after you get vaccinated, there may even be an increased risk of, in, of, of, of infection. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if, I, if that's right, but that's, the, that's, the, that's what some, some, uh, some studies seem to suggest. Um, so if that's true, then it's a very complicated thing. You want, you know, getting the vaccine on net probably has very little effect on others getting, getting infected or not. Um, but, and it actually, there's another, another strain of the literature suggesting that when you get the vaccine, you are go, you go out and walk and commute in the community more. So it's interesting. And like, you're just, so there's this risk compensation effect where you actually end up maybe potentially infecting more people with the, because you're vaccinated, um, just because you are more likely to go, go out and do stuff with your life. Uh, so it's a very complicated question about what the, the, the externalities induced by this fact, the positive externalities or negative externalities induced by the vaccine. It could be, and my point of view, when it, whenever it's complicated like that, is it's that externality reasoning is a, is a, it should be reserved for really clear cut cases. Because what you're talking about is an, an infringement on my personal autonomy, my privacy about my, 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 most medical decisions really ought to be, in my view, personal decision taken in consultation with your doctor. And I think that's what this vaccine is. It's not a public decision, it's a private decision. And because of that, the, the mandates make no sense. Make, they're, they're, they're utterly irrational. Um, it's, you, you can get some sense of this, like just, they won't, they don't have these, they don't have an exception for if you've had prior disease and recovered, even though the, the evidence is so strong that it produces, produces lasting immunity. This is not about, about public health. This is about co coercion, it's, a, it's actually, it's deeper than that. I think this has to do with fear. Fear of the disease, prejudice against working class people who, who actually took the risk of, of getting the disease even when there wasn't a vaccine and kept society functioning. Um, disdain for people that are not like you. I think there's a lot of, a lot sort of like deep seated lizard brain kind of thing behind the support for the, the, these vaccine mandates. You know, Jay, sometimes it feels like I'm in the twilight zone. It just, it, and I get the sense in certain parts of the country, um, maybe not others, but certain parts, uh, I'll walk around and I'll, I'll be in counties where I know they have high vaccination rates. I know that a lot of people in the store that I'm in uh, are highly vaccinated, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but just based on demographics and the numbers, you, you, 
a lot of them. And yet people act like they're almost more afraid of the virus than when it started. Yeah. Fully vaccinated. I, I find that's very strange. What, well, Jimmy, what is that I mean, like I think I think that the fear of infectious disease is primal. It's it's built into you know, we humans have this from, from it just, it's not, it's almost impossible. You have to like, as a doctor, you have to like sort of get over it a little bit to, in order to be a good doctor. Um, and uh, most people, I think we've lit, grown up in a society where uh, in the rich world, not in the poor world, uh, in the poor parts of the world, but the, in the rich parts of the world, we grew up in a society where infectious disease was a remote concern. We'd conquered them, right? There was no infectious disease. We were HIV, of course, but then we, we have a, now something that can manage that. Um, we have grown up and the, the HIV was a disease of the other, right? So it's, you know, it didn't affect me. Um, so I think we have grown up in a society that uh, essentially we thought we are, we're so technologically advanced that we no longer worry, have to, have to worry about infectious disease, you know, or maybe unless you go visit India or something or, you know, some, some, some poor part of the world. And that is turned out has been very, is very dangerous. It's left our society essentially vulnerable to panic over 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 this disease and that panic we're, what we're seeing in the all of the crazy craziness is essentially playing out of that panic it's a powerful force and i uh i think we have to uh we have rather than working to overcome it which is what what public health and public policy and the media should have done by telling people facts about what the disease act, who would actually, who's actually at risk and actual things we can do to mitigate that risk. And instead we stoke that panic and fear and it's caused great harm. Well, I've decided I'm not gonna participate in it. Um, it's just not gonna do it. Um, I don't, I mean, it's, I actually wanted to ask you about this because I kind of, I, I'm sort of a double mind about this. I'm, I'll walk into stores and I'll think, you know, I'm 37, I'm gonna be 38 in about a week. Not the best health, but, you know, not terrible health either. Um, I'm double vaxxed. I think I hate masks. I absolutely hate masks. They're just uncomfortable. They're not very fun. And so if I have the option, I choose not to wear masks. It's not that I want to infect other people, but I think at a certain point, I don't know. I, it, it just seems like we're, we're either, we're gonna, it seems like we're going to live with COVID for a long time. We're either going to get back to normal or not. And I don't know, maybe I'm doing something wrong then. Maybe I need to rethink that. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be the bad guy here, but I also don't want to live in fear either. You know, that there's a middle ground and, but I'm not sure I'm on it. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, <laughs> okay. So, so um, we have to, I'm, okay. So let me just tell you where I'm coming from, from a philosophical point of view, a religious point of view, maybe it's like, I, I, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. What does that mean? Uh, sometimes it means uh, doing everything I can to not infect my 80 year old mom because she's, she's at high risk. Sometimes it means lovingly telling them that this doesn't make sense. You're harming people by, by requiring them to do this. Sometimes it, it can mean different things in different contexts. I don't like personal confrontation one-on-one. -on -one. I just, just makes me unhappy. So, and it, frankly, if, if someone is scared of me because I'm, I'm breathing, then I'm going to, I, like sometimes I'll just say, okay, just to, just to like make you feel comfortable, I'll wear it. I won't say it. I'll just do it. Um, it I, so I'm not, I'm not against that. The, the evidence on mass is so equivocal, Jimmy. It's so, it's unbelievable to me that, that medical types have, have sort of oversold this. Um, there are 14 randomized studies in the context of the flu that I'm aware of that found no effect on stopping the spread of the flu in healthcare settings where people actually know how to wear masks even. 
there's a randomized study in there's a there's a study uh, uh, in the the Hajj, you know, like the mil, Muslim pilgrimage, where the, the the researchers randomized tents, and one one tent got the the mask, the other tent didn't get the mask, um, and uh, they couldn't get more than forty percent of the people to wear the mask in the in the, in some of these tents. But like in any case, uh, there was no difference in the flu outcomes for those for those tents. Um, uh, it, the, the, it's very difficult to show these masks have any effect whatsoever. These mask mandates have any effect whatsoever because most people just don't, are not, not wearing masks that can have any possibility of, of actually stopping the, the spread of an aerosolized virus. Um, it's just very difficult to wear. And even healthcare settings is difficult to wear for a very long time without, you know, you have to be trained. Um, in, uh, in the context of COVID, there's two randomized studies. One, the Danish mass study, where they randomly gave like 3,000, I think, people with masks. It's uh, 3,000 or something like that. Um, and they found no difference in, in, in Denmark between the people who were given the mask and didn't in terms of getting COVID. That, that's like uh, no statistically significant difference. It was slightly lower COVID rates in more, like 2.1% versus 1.8%. Um, and, the, and then there's this Bangladeshi mass study where they randomized villages. Again, they could only get 40% of the people in the, in the villages that were assigned masks to, to wear it. The cloth mask had no difference. And the, and the villages that had the surgical masks were slightly lower. Uh, bare, I don't even think it was statistically significant. It was like on the edge of statistical significance. It was like 10%. If it was a vaccine, it was like 10% efficacious vaccine for the surgical masks. Uh, concentrated in older people, no, 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 no kids enrolled. I, I mean, it's so equivocal that I just, you look at this evidence, you go, how on earth are any medical professionals who, re, who know how to read data excited about this? The Cochrane review of this, of the, of the mass literature says that we don't have any high quality evidence to suggest mass work on this. So uh, now I, I get that. I think a lot of the, a lot of the impetus behind the adoption of mass had to do with, we wanted to give people a sense of agency that they have some control over this like virus from the from, from from Mars, and we can just we can do something in our lives to protect it. And so, so I think a lot of the the demand for masks have to do with it's almost like this this. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just you, you shouldn't do this, but like it's like we're trying to give you something, give you anything, so that you feel some control, uh, even when the evidence is equivocal. Medicine is rife with all kinds of like crazy things where, where we know things to be true, but when there's just equivocal evidence and when you do a randomized study, it turns out to be utterly wrong. Like you, know, you have the reversals all the time in medicine. I think this mass feels like this. I mean, in fact, it's even worse because there was evidence before the epidemic that the masks weren't all that useful. It's why in 2020, February, 2020, you see Fauci saying the masks don't, don't work. You shouldn't be using them. He was reflecting what the literature said. And all of a sudden in March 2020, late March 2020, masks now work on the basis of no new studies, by the way, that, that occurred then. It's, it was not science that led to this, this, this mania for masks, something else. Well, for my, and, and like I said, you're a doctor, so correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, a part of my skepticism stems from the fact that um, medical students have to be trained in a class how to use a mask. So here's an analogy, right? Suppose I think that gun, having a gun makes you safer overall, right? It, it better allows you to protect yourself, let's suppose, for the sake of argument. So I decide, you know, I'm just gonna pass out guns to everybody. It'll make them all safer. What I've neglected, of course, is that you have to train with a gun, learn how to load it and clean it, shoot it and safely use it and all the other stuff, right? So I've, I've left out that part, the, the training part, right? And it seems like a lot of the safety, if there's going to be any, with like a cop with a gun or a bodyguard or something, is going to be in the training, the, the know-how, right? Yeah. 
wouldn't that by analogy apply to masks? I mean, if they're going to be efficacious at all, it's going to be because people know how to use them and simply handing out cheap you know, cotton masks is not going to, it's not going to do much. Yeah. I mean, for instance, so you, you, if you were a surgeon, you'd probably ask to shave that beard of yours. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I just, I think, uh, I, you, you know, maybe you could get away with it if you're a good enough surgeon. I don't know. Um, I, 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 th I think, um, I, I think you have, you, I think you're definitely onto something. I mean, like I, it's one of these things where like, uh, if it's good for one person, it's good for everybody. Well, that's a logical fallacy. Like we don't know that. Uh, it, it's it's not. It's it, it. It may be good for for uh, for 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 uh, um, you know for me to to. Um, it may be good for my child to like learn the alphabet, but teaching me the alphabet is not all that useful. Uh, I mean, we don't we don't know that uh, we don't we and, and especially in the absence of evidence, you shouldn't be mandating things at population scale. Uh, you know, a lot of the reason also I think has to do with this idea that many people think that mask wearing is costless. Oh, everyone can do it; it's easy; it's no problem. But like you look at these videos of people trying to mask two year olds, which is what the CDC recommends, and it's insane. Like, and and, and then you have like. American Association for Pediatrics saying, oh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't hurt them at all. It, it, you should just be able to do it. I mean, like, what are they, are they crazy? I mean, it just seems like they've forgotten who they're supposed to, I mean, the, the pediatricians, my God. Um, anyways, I, I just, I think it's one of these things where like, uh, it just, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting this up to like lizard brain. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's rational. It, it just has to do with fear. And we're scared of two-year-olds, I guess, in the United States. You know, Europe doesn't require, the World Health Organization doesn't recommend masking two-year-olds, two, three, four, five-year-olds, they recommend against it. Um, so that means to the World Health Organization, the CDC disagree. Where's the evidence the CDC has provided that masking two-year-olds is necessary for this control of disease? Where's the, where's the evidence that stops? So the idea that it's like costless um, is, is, is essentially projection. For some people, it's not that big a deal to wear a mask. And they can't imagine for other people it might be. And I think that that's really the root of it. I, I hate I hate masks personally. And I can't even imagine having to, I mean, thankfully I don't have to wear them in my office, but I can't even imagine being on a job. I mean, I've got relatives who, you know, they work jobs. They have to wear masks eight hours a day and physical jobs where you're, you know, you're breathing very heavily and it's it gets in the way of the breathing. But what really annoys me is this, um, I don't even know what to call it. I guess you might call it the minor cost minor inconvenience argument. So people will say things like, well, what, you know, why not undergo a minor inconvenience if it'll save even a handful of lives, right? I call it the, the inconvenience argument. Yeah. And I think, well, the problem with that argument is that it, you, you don't actually care that much about saving lives. And the reason I say that is because it's, it's more about the COVID than it's about the lives. There's lots of things we could do that would be minor inconveniences. Yeah. There's a lot of things. I mean, you know, we could install breathalyzers on everyone's car. You'd have to breathe into it to store your car. I mean, it's a minor inconvenience, but you'd save a lot of lives. It'd prevent a lot of drunk driving, right? Presumably, or, or tamp down on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think generally what we do is we, we put the responsibility on the person that's being harmed yeah. in part because uh, actually for good economic reasons, they have a much stronger incentive to invest in not being harmed than, the, than I do to, to, do, to do, take a minor inconvenience in order to protect you. And most people... When they're faced with a choice of do I take a minor inconvenience to, to potentially save a, a remote life, will say no, I'm not. It's not worth it to me. Well, Whereas, it's not just that it's not worth it. It's that if you took, there's no limiting principle in our lives. If you took this to its logical conclusion, you'd be you'd be having to do all kinds of minor inconveniences that, in aggregate, would make your life really very different and, and much less enjoyable. 
I mean, the yeah. point of life is not just to live. It's to have experiences and meaningful things. And, and you know. That's interesting. I mean, like, like basically, I mean, like I, what you're saying is that there are, I, mean, I, th- I think people are altruistic, but that the, the, the supply of the altruism people have is limited. And, and generally, like people will focus altruism on things that they think make a big difference rather than alter, on, on the things that make a small difference. And essentially what you're saying is, and I think is, is interested is right. I mean, it's like, essentially you're sapping up people's supply of altruism on, on things that are very remote. When in fact, now with the vaccines, the people that are vulnerable can protect themselves against the harm. How? Just by getting vaccinated, right? And before the vaccines, you could protect yourself against the harm by, uh, you know, with a whole series of focus protection measures that, that, that are more costly than a vaccine, but still possible. By focusing your efforts on the people most harmed, you that's that's actually good economics, right? It's good it's good public policy, good health, public health, but also good economics because they have the strongest incentives to 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 adopt the measures that protect them. Whereas asking the the you know so the broad public to to take small small inconvenient measures that that it's that actually I even object to the idea that small and inconvenient like it is it's. You know, you, you you bike to work. Are you gonna are you gonna wear a mask? I mean, when when did when do you start? It's just actually quite inconvenient for many many people, and they don't and there's and you can see in the fact that there is such broad and widespread opposition outside of a few areas to masks. I mean, no one wears them voluntarily. I think really, uh, but very very few people wear them voluntarily when no one's looking. Um, there's just, it doesn't strike me as true that it's just inconvenient. It's obviously more than just a little inconvenient. Or the people who wear them under their nose. Right? Well, I just, I mean, like, it's I think. common. Like I'm going to grocery store. To it because look, what they're doing is they're, do, they're, they're trying to thread the needle. They're trying to, like, not create a scene right. while still being able to breathe. So. Um, you know what this is? This is the bum in the park drinking out of a paper bag, right? Where you're like, you're drinking in public, which is illegal. But you put it in a paper bag. Right. So it's not too obvious. It's that line. Right. That's what that is. And you see a lot of people who do that. I don't yeah. think they're bad people. I just think it's hard to breathe in masks. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I like, I'd like to actually, frankly, I like those people. I've, those are people that are like trying to maintain the social niceties and, you know, not trying to like create a fuss, but they're trying to do, just get out, get, get out of this ridiculous thing where like, you know, you're outdoors. There's very few cases of, of documented spread of COVID outdoors. Um, why would I do this only because for social pressure, there's no other reason. So the guys were going around with the mask under the nose. They're, they're trying to thread the needle. I kind of admire it. Well, it's funny too, because I live in an area that's very, um, it's very rural. There's a lot of, there's a lot of land in between houses and it's just very spread out. It's very beautiful. A lot of trees. And I'll see some bozo walking on the street, wearing a mask and there's nobody else around for hundreds and hundreds of feet. And I just think, Maybe we're trying to protect squirrels and trees. I don't know, but that's that's what I'm yeah, talking I, about. When I say it seems like I'm in the twilight zone. I've walked in think... state parks where, like, we're we're walking around and it's nobody for you know. And then we come, the, you can see people walking towards you, mm-hmm. and the question you're asking is, do I need to mask up when I get near them, or will they yell at me if I don't? Um, I mean, it's just it's it's created this like weird social frisson that we just if it if it actually did stop disease from spreading it'd be one thing but the evidence as i said is so equivocal about this that that i don't know why we created the social frisson 
other than to try to assuage people by giving them something they feel that's within their control that they can do to manage the risk of the fear that they have. No, it's exactly, I think that's exactly what it is. There's, there's any number of uh, Simpsons episodes where a crisis will happen and someone will scream from the crowd, won't somebody please think of the children? You know, you're always like, or there ought to be a law, right? There, we should, somebody should do something. Yeah. Just the sense of, of I, th- I think you nailed it, the sense of agency. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. But I wanted to switch, given the, how the dearth of evidence here, to a question about trust in public health officials, which seems like it's taken quite a hit in the last year and a half or so. It's deservedly so, Jimmy. But, but, what, but what can be done to, if anything, maybe, maybe nothing, but what can be done to fix it, repair it, mitigate the, the damage? I, I, I think first thing that needs to happen is that the, the, the CDC director needs to get in front of the American public and apologize for all of the craziness and the mistakes and the, and the, and the harm that public health has caused the public, American public. You know, if, I mean, you want to just judge how well public health has done. We have 650,000 some deaths from COVID. How well has public health actually done in mitigating COVID, right? I mean, it's, it's on public health. How, uh, there's enormous collateral harm from all of the, the measures that were these lockdown measures. We kept, in my California where I live, we kept kids out of school and pu- public schools for a full year and a half uh, with enormous consequences for their entire lives. They're gonna be poorer, less healthy, uh, it's, it, and, it, and, uh, and live less long. Our, the kids of this generation, I mean, I, I, we need to apologize. Our generation should be apologizing abjectly to the, the generation that we harmed. And, and just real quick, it's not exactly like the children in a lot of public schools can stand to lose, um, you know, abilities and, and educational opportunities as it is right before the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I saw this picture. I still, I'm still, this, I'm still haunted by this. It was like May of 2020 of two kids, two Hispanic kids that were like seven and eight years old or something. And the cutest can be, it's on the Cerner Jose Mercury News. They're sitting outside of a Taco Bell on the sidewalk because they're at their house. They don't have internet. And so the parents brought them to Taco Bell to sit outside and do Zoom school from Taco Bell. Um, like, I guess, like, what have we done? Like, what what purpose is served by that? It's not infection control. The, the, actually, there was very, you know, it's just, I, I did a seroprevalence study in Santa Clara County uh, in April of last year, and it was 2.8% prevalence of, of, of uh, people with, with the disease. It was 50 times more than, than identified infections, but it just wasn't all that prevalent. And keeping kids out of school probably did, actually probably made things worse. Right, because schools uh, are not actually high-spread environments. Places in Europe and elsewhere that kept schools open did not do worse than places that didn't. Kids, uh, the, the, the teachers in Sweden who were in school all of last year without before a vaccine, with no social distancing, no masks, actually had rates of infection that were lower than people in the population at large. It was safer for them to be in school than in the in the community at large. Um, so this is one of these things where, like, again, the evidence points in one direction and our public policy points in another. Uh, and it's, and it's, uh, and, but it's not just costless. It actually is very, very harmful to our, ch- to our to children, a whole generation of especially poor children. Yeah, I'm not really in a position to answer this question. I don't know anybody is, but I wonder how many decades out we're going to still be feeling the effects of um, these so-called mitigation measures, at least in the States. I don't know about other places, but... No, this is this is this is a this is this, the the most important public health event in in centuries, uh, and not because of the the disease, because we've had worse diseases rip through our population. 
um, the, it's because of the, the mitigation measures themselves have caused such, I mean, my, the only question in my mind is whether the lockdown harms are two or three or four orders of magnitude worse than, um, than the disease itself. In terms of the marginal benefit, I think it's, it's if, if you had me pick a number, zero would be pretty close in terms of the marginal benefit of these, lock, these lockdowns. I mean, I don't know how, many, how many infections have we actually prevented with all of the stuff that we've done? And I think it's pretty close to zero. Um, you convinced me that it's positive. Like you didn't convince me it's negative. I mean, I, do, I don't know the number exactly, but right. it's not large compared to the lockdown harms. All right. So you're saying, you know, it's, it's done some good, but it's done lots and lots and lots of bad. Yeah. I'm not even convinced it's done good, but you could, you could convince me otherwise, I suppose. All right. I want to switch gears because we're running out of time and ask you two questions that I try and ask every guest, not really related to the lockdown or COVID, but um, I think they're important questions and, and things we overlook. So the first question is whether there was a time either in your personal life or your professional life when you failed spectacularly and how you, what you learned from that and how it uh, affected your life. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a, that's a good question. So actually, let me, let me just take it from COVID um, and the, the failure uh, that the, at, at the, um, I worked on the Santa Clara seroprevalence study. Santa Clara, uh, that was the very first seroprevalence study with a published article or, 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 or a released you know, paper. Um, and, and I think still one of the most highly cited seroprevalence studies, but now published in the International uh, Journal of Epidemiology. We got this, we put this together in essentially two weeks, a study that would normally take a year to organize we put it together in two weeks in late March, 2020, because we, it, I'd written an article in the Wall Street Journal saying, we don't know how severe the disease is because we, we don't know how widespread the disease is. If you wanna know the infection fatality rate, you need to know how many people are infected with the disease, not just how many people show up in the hospital or counted as case. Um, and so, you, uh, so and we had no data on this and the World Health Organization was saying, this is a 3% of people that get the disease die from it. Well, we don't know that because we don't know the denominator. We need to know the denominator, right? Um, so we, uh, we wrote the article. We got incredible amount of people, support from people calling me around the world, offering these antibody test kits, uh, essentially trying to help get the study off the ground because everybody wants to know this number. Um, and we worked with the Stanford uh, Institutional Review Board, the Human Subjects Board to organize it uh, in, a, in, a, in a you know sort of ethical way. Um, they gave our approval. Um, we put out, we found, we get the result. The result is that 2.8% uh, of Santa Clara County had antibodies, 50 out of 3,000. And 50 out of 3,000, and then you have to adjust for the demographics of the county. So 50 out of 3,000 is the raw numbers, but there was oversampling of people in like right around Stanford, which was like rich. We undersampled that because we did this Facebook scheme and more people from rich areas signed up. So once you do the reweighting, you get 2.8%. Um, okay, uh, we, there was an error in the calculation of the standard error. The, the, not in the mean, that 2.8% number was right, but uh, there, there was an error in the, so we just, and I didn't pick it up. I should have picked that up. Um, and version one re is released to the public and then Twitter explodes and I get a thousand referee reports in my inbox <laughs> overnight <laughs> pointing out they don't, they don't actually point the error out. They, they just, most of them don't, don't see what they, but they're like, they're smell, they're like, that, that standard error can't be right. They were right. They're, they're, so a week later, we release an update with the standard error corrected. 
I really wish I had not, I wish I had picked that error up in the standard error kind. I would have, had, would have made a, I, I don't actually think it necessarily would have changed because I think a lot of the reaction to that paper was just everyone in March, 2020 was certain this was the, the, the most deadly plague on earth. And we were about, to, and any news that suggested otherwise was going to be seen as, as suspect. Um, but I really wish I hadn't, I wish I picked up that standard error error. Um, it, would, it would have made my life a little easier. Well, it makes you feel any better. There's a typo in the abstract of the first paper I ever published, which haunts me to this day. It absolutely drives me buggy, but it is what it is. I mean, if that's the only mistake you ever make in your career, you're doing just fine. <laughs> well, luckily my mistakes don't have a, a big impact on people. So that's probably one of the upsides of being a philosopher. Um, oh, so the Jimmy, you're wrong about that, buddy. You, you, you guys are like, it's, it's over centuries. You have these effects. Well, then it's, then it's a group, then there's a group guilt thing, and I don't take any responsibility for that. Um, so my last question, and it's particularly salient because we're talking about a pandemic, is that uh, what do you want people to say about your work, you and your work, 100 years hence, and what do you want written on your tombstone? It's a legacy <laughs> question, right? Um, my work, uh, it's, it's funny, I was thinking about the work from before the pandemic. I mean, I, I care deeply about my work. I mean, I've, I've worked, I you know, worked really hard to be able to, to, to do the work. And I, I've always loved my work. I, I, my wife tells me I work too hard on it. Um, uh, but I don't, I look back and I can't make myself excited about going back and doing anything on those, on those old topics. I only care at this point about two things uh, in my career. It's the, the work I've done during the pandemic to assess the, the, how, how risky it is and to whom it's risky and the eff efficacy and collateral harms of these measures. I think that, that work is quite important to me. Um, and then uh, another strand of my work, I did actually do some of this before, but I'm gonna continue, but I think it's grown in importance to me now is I think science needs to be healed. Science has failed. And I mean, we've succeeded in some ways, like the, the, the development of the vaccine is an amazing thing, I think, uh, some therapeutics and things and some, but in many other ways, science has entered a dark place. We have essentially uh, censoring of contrary views, smearing of scientists who disagree. Uh, we, have a, we have a setting where scientists are writing from all over the world telling me that they're afraid to say, speak up. Because, of their, because they're afraid of their colleagues, they're afraid of getting canceled, they're afraid of being fired. People have been fired from their jobs for writing papers in science. And they write to me and tell me this. So science essentially is, in a, I think, in a, is, is, is uh, although it looks from the outside like it has some great accomplishments, which is true, it's actually in a very dark place. Um, and so I wanna work very hard in coming years to try to fix that if I can. I, we're gonna win this COVID um, war. I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of people are starting to understand that these these lockdowns have been devastatingly harmful. It was a catastrophic mistake. I think we're going to win this. Eventually, the fear will subside, and uh, people will start to come to their senses. And because the harm is so great, it's impossible to to to, to avoid. Um, but the science, what whether science can can be repaired, whether public health and science can be repaired, that's a, that's an open question to me. And I want to work really hard in the coming years on that on that. Um, so what do you want written on your tombstone? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I want to, I'm, I'm a Christian, right? So I want, I want something to say that I was faithful, that I worked, that I, that I did was, but I, I, I used the talents I was uh, for, for, for a good purpose.
No, that's fair enough. I get, I get that. It was a legacy question. That's good. That's a good legacy to have. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you, Jimmy.